Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast. I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. And I'm Julie Kingsley. And we are hoping to build the happiest and best community of writers in the entire world. It's very ambitious. We have a lot of coffee. (laughs) The Manuscript Academy hosts a number of events and opportunities beyond this podcast, including live events, both written and live critiques from top minds in the industry, and a complete online writing conference. And I'm so excited for today. Yes, we have a very special guest, Vivian Lee. Vivian Lee is a writer and book editor. Her book list includes Matthew Salas's The Hundred Year Flood, Viet Din's After Disasters, Penn Faulkner Finalist, Naima Coster's Halsley Street, Kirkus Prize Finalist, and Harold Schechter's Hell's Princess, a Washington Post bestseller. She specializes in literary fiction and narrative nonfiction, including true crime, memoir, essays, and long-form reporting. In both fiction and nonfiction, she is interested in a strong story or narrative, usually dealing with identity or relationships of any kind, family, personal versus body, nature, man. And she is a 2018 PW Publishers Rising Star Honoree. Her writing can be found at the Los Angeles Times, Eater, L.com, Catapult, and more. She graduated from the University of California, Irvine, with a BA in literary journalism, and from the New School University in New York with an MFA in creative writing nonfiction. Originally from Los Angeles, she now resides in Queens. You can read more here at Rumpus and the Kirkus Reviews. And we'll put links to those in the show notes. Welcome, Vivian. Hi, thank you for having me. We're so happy you're here, and I can't wait to get started. There's so much I want to jump on here. Everything from California Pizza Kitchen. I'm a Californian, too. And then you came out to New York, and that sounds like quite a shock. We were talking about moving into Soho and how that messes with your mind. (laughs) I know. I moved to New York when I was 22, so very young and very impressionable. And I moved to Chinatown, and I lived there for seven years. Um, But, you know, I moved to New York primarily to kind of pursue if we don't further my education. So I, I did my, I did my grad school in New York. And how was that different? And like, what kind of cultural shock did you have going from California to New York? Honestly, not a lot of culture shock only because I spent a lot of my time in Hong Kong where my family is from. And so that's a denser kind of more chaotic city. And so I was used to kind of jumping on the subway and just being in a lot of crowds I think the biggest shock was maybe the winter though, because I came to New York with two luggages and nary a coat in sight. So yeah, (laughs) now I have a full closet just of coats. (laughs) Yes. They take up so much room. I remember the first day that I went coat shopping and just panicked. I was like, wool, yes, wool, puff, everything. (laughs) Vivian, we're so excited to have you. So you came to New York for, to continue your education, but tell us how you moved directly into publishing. What's the story there? Yeah, great question. So, you know, when I first started, before even grad school, I was 
working freelancing at the Los Angeles Times, covering music and concerts. And so, you know, writing and reading has always been a huge part of my life. Even before undergrad, I was, you know, on the yearbook staff and, and it, was, it was always about storytelling. So when I moved to New York after, you know, during grad school and kind of figuring out what my voice was and what stories I was gravitating towards, publishing was always this kind of nebulous thing for me only because for a very long time, I didn't really see people who look like me in this industry. I didn't know that that Asian Americans can succeed in this industry. So it was never really a super big option for me. But when I was applying to jobs, I was applying basically kind of everywhere. I, you know, I graduated, I graduated college uh, during the recession. So I wasn't, so I was very used to kind of being scrappy and used mm-hmm. to just applying to a lot of different things and just figuring out what my options are. But I always knew that I wanted a job in storytelling and in kind of making sure that a story is being told well. And so publishing was ended up being an option. And so I applied to a lot of, a lot of places that were looking for editorial assistance. And Little A was, um, Little A and Amazon Publishing was one that reached, you know, that applied for and, did a very lengthy interview process for and ended up getting the job and really fitting in very well. And that's kind of where I started in my publishing journey. So that that's amazing. And it sounds like so many folks in your industry, you know, do move from that um, internship directly into the world. But I think what interests, interests me most is what you said that I don't see people look like me. Can you go into how that feels now? For sure. For I mean, I think it's always... I think on like a lower kind of level, if you're an EA, which is editorial assistant or an assistant editor, there are many more people of color in there. But once you kind of move up towards the top, there are fewer and fewer. And so it's just harder to see what that ladder of success looks like. And so I think that with me, anytime anyone wants to reach out for coffee, who wants to break into this industry, I always say yes, because I find that, and I still find that now, mentorship is such a huge help in kind of just demystifying the process and also figuring out what you actually want to do and and also help to advocate for yourself because I find that you know in these kind of situations it's always hard to learn how to advocate for yourself so I think that more and more people are learning how to speak up and being comfortable with speaking up and having the vocabulary and the framework to talk about the problems that people color face in publishing and also building that camaraderie and the internet has been a super great help with that too. And sort of building these online communities kind of just commiserate, but also talk about, you know, our successes and our failures and also be a huge networking that we weren't, we didn't really have before. I feel like so many things in the industry happen because of who, you know, both on a sort of like nepotism level, but also in a much better sense, the real relationships that you have are kind of the things that make everything worth it and also seem to change things on the ground. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I honestly wouldn't be where I was if I didn't, you know, tap into the community that I had built. And that's almost every question I answer is going to be like stressing that because community is such a huge part of my life in many, many aspects. And this is uh, especially one of them. Yeah, it's super important. Also, I read a quote of yours that I thought was really funny, but also a little bit sad. You said, I can count at least five white, straight, male, upper middle class fiction writers with the first name, Jonathan. Yeah. (laughs) 
but you pointed out that even though they have so much in common, it's assumed that they have a different perspective from each other. And I thought that was such an interesting and important distinction to make. Yeah. I mean, it's just, everyone's experience is different. Even if you have very similar upbringings, like we talked about both being from California and having, you know, that kind of culture shock of like moving back and forth, but yet like our experiences are very different, right? We can write so many different stories between the two of us. And it's, you know, it's kind of the thing of why can't we give that kind of lens to writers of color too, just because they're from similar backgrounds doesn't mean they have the same story. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you do when you're not working? Because you do so many things. How do you balance out your life and make it so that you get to feel like a person as well as a publishing person? <laughs> yeah, very. it's very important, I think, to have time to relax in whatever way that means. For me, it means not looking at my phone and not scrolling through Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> Which, oh boy, is a major <laughs> life and time suck. So, mm-hmm. you know, now that I'm freelancing, I have a little bit more time to read for pleasure So I've been kind of just opening up genre wise books that I am reading because, you know, when I was, when I was tied with a publishing house, I kind of had to read books that were in a similar field just to see what the market was like. And now I'm reading just like reading science fiction and reading fantasy and reading romance. I'm reading all these things where genres are different and and fun and kind of opening it up to that. So that's one way that I'm doing uh, what I'm doing to kind of figure out myself as a human. Writing is one. I love to cook. I love to bake. I love to take walks. I'm basically a retired person at this point. Um, (laughs) You know, just things that kind of make me move away from the screen, I've learned is has been a way to kind of remind myself and center myself of what to be, how to be a human. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like the more time I spend on the phone scrolling, the less happy I am as a person. You just start, yeah, you just start like thinking about your brain just goes in too many directions and, you know, you don't have time to kind of just sit with yourself and enjoy the time that you have. Mm -hmm. Well, I saw there was a TED talk and it was all about how if you give your mind time to rest and that's where kind of the magic happens with ideas and things like that. So, I mean, you talked about, I really enjoyed how you talked about how with more time you have more, you know, space for exploration. Yes. So can you even imagine a world with no publishing? And if there was no publishing, what would you do? What's, what's your backup plan? <laughs> I think I would just constantly be writing, I think, and just being in community with writers and readers. I think, I mean, I think there's this huge misconception of publishing is this being the same thing as writing or literature. And they're not, right? Like publishing is a business. And, but there's always going to be stories and there's always going to be storytellers. So even if publishing didn't exist, core part that I love that I'm of my job, which is talking to writers and, and telling these stories will always be there. I also think it's interesting that you got an MFA. So you went really far into the literary, like writing for the sake of creativity and creation and everything perspective. And then you went into the business side of it. Can you talk a little bit about the contrast there and like, where are you now with like the you know, there was a book called MFA versus NYC that was essays about, you know, yes, you should get an MFA. No, you should just have a job and write on the side. Like, how do you feel about all of that now? Yeah, good question. I think having a background in writing has really helped develop me as an editor, just because I always think, how do I want to be edited? And how 
you know, it's, so it's all about like clarity and it's all about focusing on words. And so I think being a writer myself and having that kind of craft based knowledge and education has helped me become a better editor just to be able to articulate what I'm looking for in a writer. And so I think it's translated well in kind of that way too. And then to answer that second part of whether or not to get an MFA, I think it's super, super important to make sure that you can, number one, afford it, either, you know, your own savings or, or, or there's like institutional help, because otherwise you're going to spend so much of your time worrying about how to afford it, that you're not going to be able to open yourself up creatively. And I think it's just such a waste if you're not being creative in the two, three years that you have time to kind of just experiment in your own voice and in the genre that you want to be in. So I say that think about what this MFA means. If you're just doing it just to get a job, there are other things you could do (laughs) besides an MFA. But if it is a way for you to be like, I can do this and I have support institutional financial. And also I want, I need the time to experiment and kind of like be serious about my writing an MFA is a great way to do it. It's not the only way. I would like to stress that. And even, you know, when I was at little A, when writers had MFAs in their bios, you know, that's not an automatic plus for me either. It doesn't mean that I'll like look at your book more closely just because you have an MFA. Yeah, I feel that way too. I always think that a lot of writers think it's a prerequisite and I don't feel that way at all. No, I mean, I built a lot of lifelong friends from it and it really kind of honed me as a writer, but it's not the end all be all. I mean, there's so many different ways you can, you can kind of master your craft and an MFA is not the only one. I actually was reading something with my boss that came in a few weeks ago and we were both absolutely sure he had an MFA and he didn't. (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought that was so funny because, you know, there's a certain style that every so often I think of as like, oh yeah, that's like an MFA style. (laughs) And (laughs) I was just, I was so amused by the fact that we were absolutely a hundred percent sure that he had and he hadn't. (laughs) That's so funny. So it's so interesting. So you were a writer and you're an editor and so, and you've seen, and you've been in this business for quite a while now. So what is something that's changed in your time in the industry? Have you seen any real pivots or anything that you've really noticed as you've kind of been in all these different worlds? Yeah. I mean, I think that in terms of just kind of equity and, and in terms of kind of tolerance, it's been, people are being more vocal and being more comfortable with being more vocal and not fear of being blacklisted. I had a mentor a couple years ago who is also Asian American. And she was telling me, she's like, when I started out, there was no way I could be talking about even the books I wanted to acquire. It's specifically like, I want these stories that are not just like general. Like I just, you know, like I want immigration stories. Like she said that she wasn't even allowed to say things like that. So really, yeah. Yeah. And what would have happened if she had? I think they would have left, you know, she said she would either be um, talked down or just like not taken seriously. And I think that there has been a big shift of like these stories are important and these writers are important. And so giving the space for that to like really see what happens and not, I mean, for me personally, it's been great to have a list of a lot of strong writers who were writing about their immigration or about their families in ways that haven't really been published before. And knowing too, that I had the support to 
keep acquiring books like that. And it wasn't just like, oh, we already have something like this on our list. Right. You actually have two pieces that I really enjoyed. One about shopping for a Mother's Day gift and one Mm. about California Pizza Kitchen. Um, One thing I thought was so fascinating about how you did it was that they're officially about one thing, but they're really about so much more. And that's a quality that is really hard to find in things that I read. And I think it's really rare. Is that something you did consciously or can you tell us a little more about your process with those and about the stories? Yeah. Thank you so much for reading them. So shopping for a Mother's Day gift was a piece I wrote for Elle. And, you know, it kind of, it was an idea born actually from Twitter where I just like tweeted something where I just said, like, what is a gift you give to a mother who's, traver- you know, who's traversed 7,000 miles for you into a new country with having to learn a new language and a new culture? Like, what's the appropriate gift for that? And, like, how can you thank someone for doing that, for sacrificing their entire life for you to have a better life? Like, a candle's not going to be enough. So that was kind of the genesis and germ of that. And then kind of figuring out, like, what does that actually mean and what does sacrifice actually mean and also kind of the relationship with my mother who was an immigrant and me who's first generation born here and and what does that mean for her to have given all that up and then also talking to a lot of my friends who are also first or second generation and what it meant for them and I think also kind of diving into the financial reality of an immigrant versus someone who was born here and like who is given a better life financially and what does that mean? Um, so it's kind of opening up to all of that too. And then in the CPK essay that was for Eater was about all of our big celebrations happened at California Pizza Kitchen, which was this is still this chain restaurant where they kind of highlight these California cuisine, which was like the big new thing in the 90s. And, you know, for me, it was, yeah, it was like, it It was was very exciting. Oh yeah. It's like, Ooh, like flatbread pizzas and these chopped salads um, with fresh ingredients and avocado. Like it's really good. (laughs) I mean, I went, yeah, it's like, I go back still and I'm like, yeah, I would like that barbecue chicken pizza, please. But you know, back then when you first started going there, it was this kind of hodgepodge, all these different California cultures that are kind of in one house before it was called Fusion, it was California Pizza Kitchen. And just seeing my family's culture in there, but also this way of feeling like I'm assimilating into whatever American Western culture was like, this was like, my peak was California Pizza Kitchen and trying to figure out what that meant. So that was kind of the dip into what this, I, this towing the line of identity meant through a chain restaurant. And for both essays and for everything I write, and that's kind of what I'm looking, what I'm looking for in, in any story is kind of, here's this like very specific thing, but it opens up to these big universal themes. Mm, I love that. So it's so interesting. Like, I feel like you're just so enmeshed culturally with what everything you're doing, um, be it California or New York and, edit, you know, editorial versus writing. So we've heard something random about you, which is that you have excellent song recommendations. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you could suggest anything for us. And also if you use music for your own writing. I do not listen to music when I'm writing because I get too distracted. 
Um, I'll just like sit there and just like start singing along and then start making a playlist or start thinking about what the song would be like in a movie. Music has always been a huge, huge, huge part of my life. And I don't know what I would have done without it. Brought me to a lot of friends. And again, back to community, it brought me to a really wonderful community. And yeah, now I'm writing column for Catapult about music and and emotion and history. And so it's kind of been a nice little bow tie on, on that. A song I would put on the playlist is something that I've been listening to a lot. It's Carly Rae Jepsen. The song is for sure. I love Carly Rae Jepsen because she encapsulates all the wonderful things about pop music. It's a mix of different genres. It's a beautiful voice. It's a singular story. And it's also something that pop music as a genre is something that took me a long time to finally appreciate because I kind of grew up with thinking that pop music was just kind of selling your soul. (laughs) Turns out it's not. I mean, maybe, but for this, I don't think it is, but that's a song I will put on the playlist. (laughs) Awesome. We will link to it in the show notes. (laughs) So I can't help but be curious what it was like to work at Little A because there are so many amazing editors and a lot of them coming from Big Five Publishing. And did you get a sense of what the differences were between working at a Big Five publisher and working at Little A? Yeah, I mean, I think with Little A, I always said this to agents and to writers is that it, you know, when I was there, I would say we'd operate like a boutique imprint with the backing of the world's largest bookstore. And what I mean by that is that, you know, I as an editor am and will always be very hands on with the editing process and be the biggest cheerleader for you internally. And so I will be reachable no matter what. I will answer any question, uh, big or small. I will be there to, be the first to clap my hand at your book reading. And so that kind of like hands-on approach isn't just with editorial, but beyond. And then in terms of, and then when I say the world's largest bookstore, Amazon is what funds our endeavor here. And, uh, you know, we sold our book on Amazon and which is the world's largest bookstore and everywhere in the world, you could buy our books. And so it's kind of this, great combination of having this huge marketing arm which is global and and people have heard of it it's a brand name but also the hands-on personable approach of the editorial and production process can you tell us a funny story from your early start in publishing Ooh, yeah actually so I was having lunch with an editor colleague of mine and a writer and another editor who was who we were working with Jim Atlas who is no longer with us now but he became kind of a mentor to me for a very long time and we had lunch and I don't know if you've ever had lunch with an agent or kind of these like business lunches where everyone orders salads in Midtown yes so why every- <laughs> that's not lunch <laughs> yeah yeah And so like everyone, but like, so the thing is like, we went to this restaurant and they made me order first and I ordered a roast chicken because that sounded very good. And it was winter time and everyone ended up ordering salads. And I was like, oh man, this is going to be embarrassing. So when it came, it took up a third of the table because (laughs) it was a roast chicken in a cast iron pan plus the jus in like a separate little like gravy boat. And then also a side of French fries and an extra plate. And then everyone had these tiny, dainty, beautiful salads. And I'm just like, knife, please. And so it was just like, I was like, oh, Vivian, maybe next time. 
feel the room first. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. I still don't think a salad is lunch. It's not lunch. I mean, it, you know, <laughs> it's, I'm kind of like, if I'm not paying for it, I want to be full. So. Yeah. I mean, if you're just going to have to go get a snack after, what's the point? Exactly. I would like to eat, please. Thank you. And these are but not would, cheap salads either. Like if, if someone is spending $30 on my lunch, I want to not have to buy a snack after. Right. So, I mean, I kind of, I mean, now I kind of mitigate it with every time I sit down with an agent or with someone, I'm, I'm always like, I'm going to order a burger. So feel free to order whatever you want. And it kind of dissipates the the tension of it so that they are also open to ordering something that they want and not a salad. <laughs> nice. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> What's something you wish writers knew about life on our side of the desk? Oh, I think here's a, a big one is that when I reject something, it's 90% of the time, not because the writing is bad or because I weirdly hate you or something. It just happens to be that it's not fitting on our list at the moment or the vision, or we have something that is actually, you know, very similar in terms of plot that um, we just don't know how to market it in a way that would be different or, you know, just something like that. But I think that a lot of times rejection isn't because the writing is bad. I, I know our listeners are always excited to hear an answer like that. <laughs> you, that's perfect. So what is your superpower? Oh, I feel like it's going to be an overachiever thing of me to say that I love to be organized. <laughs> Do you love the container store? Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> Everything's in a box. You know, I have a paper planner and a digital planner and then also a wall calendar and also a small calendar. I just love everything. I'm like very type A, which is why I really thrived when I was at Amazon. But it's it's a way for me to kind of just make sure that I'm not missing anything. And also for me to not stress about small things that I cannot control. But I think that my superpower is kind of being able to manage a lot of things at once and hopefully doing it all well. <laughs> well, and that's so important too, because I'm sure you have so many projects you're working on at the same time and keeping yeah. it all on track. I'm sure it's easier when you are extremely organized. Yeah. And also like having the time again, to go back to an early question, to have fun too, and giving myself time to go to a museum or see a movie or even watch really trashy reality TV shows, which is my new thing right now. So, <laughs> like, lo- like love is blind. I just oh finished it. I am so happy Cameron and Lauren ended up okay. I just had to make sure they ended up okay. <laughs> I was like on both of their Instagram accounts, like every week, just like refreshing to see if they still, fo- if they like follow each other. Cause they didn't until the season finale. Oh, <laughs> Oh my God. That's so, so funny. <laughs> Wait, so what's a typical day in the life of you as an independent editor? So, you know, going back to being organized, it's mm-hmm. about being organized because otherwise I will just spend my time on Instagram seeing if reality show contestants are following each other. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I wake up 6.30 or 7, make myself a breakfast and a tea, kind of check on the news. Um, that's the only, you know, I don't look at my phone until I'm out of bed. And then kind of I start my day answering any kind of important emails and then working on writer's work or my own work, depending on the day. I think it's very important to kind of keep those separate because I want to make sure I'm in this in a good headspace for both. And if I do both at the same time, then it becomes a little bit mushy. So 
I kind of trade off day by day if I'm editing something or if I'm editing my own work and then give myself a little lunch break and then do a little bit of reading. And then I kind of typically end my work day at like four, which is very different from kind of this corporate work life. But I realized that that's what works for me is that I work really hard straight for several hours and then I take a massive break. So, And then I spend the rest of the time either maybe doing a little bit more writing or doing a little more reading or doing errands that I don't have to push off to the weekend because I'm freelancing. Nice. Perfect. What would you do if you knew you could not fail and had all the resources in the world? I would start a band. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. <laughs> I'd come see your band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can only play the cello, but if I had unlimited resources and time, I would learn another instrument and then, you know, <laughs> tour, I guess. <laughs> have you seen those electric cellos? I love those. I have. They seem like so much fun. And also... When I was growing up, I was so I was such a tiny, tiny baby that my first cello teacher like refused to teach me because he said my hands were too short. But then I convinced him. But so you know, it's like these like these big instruments that are bigger than you, and an electric cello is the size is like you don't have to be a bigger person to play it. So I was always fascinated by them. <laughs> Yeah. And the people who like record one thing and then play it back and then play over it on stage. Oh my gosh. So cool. (laughs) I love the looping. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So what advice would you give to a writer just starting out and for the people who've been working on it forever and maybe not feeling the success? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think define what success means to you. Number one, it doesn't always have to be a financial success and also break down what that success means every day. Right. So I think that if you're struggling with working on something, like let that be your goal for the day of like figuring it out. A success doesn't have to be an end-all be-all. It can be these tiny things that add up to something bigger. And I think that, you know, it's not tied into acceptance from the outside world. It's really internally, did you do the thing you set out to do? And having that external validation is always nice, but it's not the end-all. And so I guess my other advice for people who are writers who are starting out is really figure out what your story is and what the big questions that you are curious about that you want to answer in the essay or the memoir or the novel that you're working on or the short story that you're working on and kind of go from there because otherwise it's harder to work on something if you don't know what those questions are and what your characters are kind of striving towards. Uh, so, so true. And, and, you know, like we say a lot here and I think I haven't said it for a while, so I'm just going to say it again. I think often the success is, you know, the people you meet along the way, Ooh. how you develop as a person. So Vivian, tell us where to find you online. Sure. Um, you can find me on my website at vivianwmlee.com and all my information is there. And then you can also find me on Twitter at your own peril at Vivian WM Lee as well. Thank you so much, Vivian. This is lovely. Thank you both so much. This has been so fun. You can meet with Vivian or book a written critique with her at manuscriptacademy.com slash Vivian hyphen Lee. And there's a link in the show notes. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. 
We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.